0: listening to Michael Easley in Context, episode 10 of A Living Hope in Hopeless Times. When this series was originally recorded, there were a few weeks where we had some technical difficulties in capturing the audio. Therefore, Michael had to go back in studio and reteach those passages. And this episode just so happens to be one of those weeks. So we are joining Michael in the studio as we continue our study of 1 Peter in chapter 2, verses 11 through 20.
1: Apostle Peter wrote to a dispersed group of believers who are suffering. They're living in a land that's not their home. To encourage them, Peter writes them about their salvation, which is imperishable. He reminds them this is based on the living and enduring Word of God and the work that Christ has done for them. While our circumstances can be a struggle, we can find hope the result of being born again, the result of being a new people of God. But yet it's difficult living in between. It's difficult practically living in between, whether we're metaphorically living in a land that's not home, whether we're literally suffering or dispersed from other believers. And this is why the letter of 1 Peter is so helpful as the day it was penned to this very day. While we will struggle We will face hostility, we can yet live as Christians. Somewhere along the line, we got the idea that if then, if we do certain things, then life will work a certain way. As I've mentioned a number of times in this series, where did we get the idea that life was going to work out a certain way? What we learn in the scripture is that we will struggle, we will face hostility, and yet we'll still live as believers. That's the objective. Now, we have kind of a primer on Christian living in First Peter. The behavior is outlined roughly in three areas. As aliens and strangers. Secondly, with governing authorities. And thirdly, between servants and masters. Broad strokes. Number one is aliens and strangers. Number two, dealing with governing authorities. And number three, the servant-master relationship. Our behavior matters more than we understand. That's a big takeaway from this passage for me, and I hope for you. Well, let's look first of all at this primer on Christian living as aliens and strangers. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter's going to begin with a negative injunction and then a positive one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, there is an endearing tone to his appeal. He writes, Beloved, I urge you. This is rarely used outside the Greek New Testament. Paul will address his readers some 28 times with that phrase, but Peter only twice in the first letter, in First Peter, but six times in his second letter. This reveals his love and his shepherd's heart, and in my opinion, it's a bit lost when the English language renders it like dear friends. Again, we don't use the word beloved a lot in the normal communication between men and women today. Beloved, we don't say that. But if we understood the setting a little bit, he cares about these people. He's a shepherd who's been a great example of a man who was, terribly betrayed his lord and then is restored and becomes a leader in the church and it reveals his love and his shepherd and pastor's heart toward his readers. Beloved I urge you as aliens and strangers and this reminds his readers again they live in a place that's not their home. It's not salt on a wound they already know it. It's like when a person has lost a loved one. Uh, The western culture and Fortunately, treads on thin ice around people that have lost a, a spouse, a parent, even a child. And we don't want to bring it up and hurt their feelings. Believe me, they know they're in grief. They think about it all the time. So for Peter to remind them that you live in a place that's not home, you're an alien stranger, doesn't hurt them. He identifies with them. As aliens and strangers, he encourages them, really exhorts them to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, we could translate the idea of abstain to be distant from. And if so, my suspicion is there's a wordplay. You live in a place that's not your home. You live far away from home. Live far away from your fleshly lusts. It's very common for people that travel for a living, people that their business requires that they're on a plane or on a route often it's very easy in a different city, in a different town, with different people, to live a life of sin than it is at home where you're best known with your husband, your wife, your family, your close friends, your church community. So when you're on the road, you can live a very different way. So it's very applicable. As aliens and strangers, I want you to live in a place that's not your home when it comes from your temptation with lust. Abstain from fleshly lust. Now, the word lust is, of course, a term we pretty well know what it means. It's an inordinate desire. It's craving. And more often than not in the New Testament, it has the nuance of sexual temptation. Kenneth Weiss writes, The fallen nature, whose power over the believer was broken when he was saved, is still there with its sin word pull. Again, the fallen nature whose power over the believer was broken when he was saved, is still there with its sin pull. Why? Peter continues, because these fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. Now, this is a spiritual warfare that is far more clear in Scripture and actually far more accurate to discuss how we deal with spiritual warfare than sometimes what we typically hear. I had a dear friend, brother, acquaintance. No matter what happened, what problem arose, his knee-jerk response was, Oh, this is spiritual warfare. This is spiritual warfare. Well, not to be unkind, but sometimes bad things happen because we're fallen people in a fallen context. Broken creatures in a broken world. We can't just label everything spiritual warfare just because it doesn't work the way we want it to or are in our timeline. But scripture here is very clear and very specific. When we succumb, and our energy, our affection, our desire is towards sin, we are distant from Christ. And every one of us who's candid can admit this. When we toy with sin... When we drop our guard, if we give way to lust, we have very little interest in Christ, his word, his prayer. Is it a corollary? I suggest more times than not it is. We have a lot of excuses today for the reasons we give in to sin, or even that we change the fact that we don't think some things are sin anymore, whether Scripture's clear on it or not. We just choose to say, well, everyone else does it and this is the way I was made and it's contextually misinterpreted. Scripture is clear. When we are living in sin, when we are engaged in fleshly lust, it wages war against our soul. D. Edmund Hebert writes, we are captured by these sinful desires and made useless to God. That That's a chilling statement to me. Captured by sinful desires and made useless to God. Well, these lusts prevent our growth as Christians. Ross writes, The pilgrim of God carries a battlefield inside his own personality. Pretty common today for uh, Christian authors and bloggers and so-called experts and thought leaders in Christianity to minimize this whole dialogue this notion that we have a new heart, that we're new creations, um, we need to parse those terms carefully. The sin nature still resides in us. I'm a firm believer that Romans chapter 7 is illustrative of the believer's battle post-salvation, the believer's battle with his or her sin. There's some Herculean hermeneutics done to try to explain that chapter as Paul's pre-conversion viewpoints. Why would he write about a pre-conversion viewpoint in the most doctrinaire book of the Bible. He's teaching the Roman believers that even though we're believers in Christ, followers of Christ, the temptation to sin is there. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life is still present. Well, in this first section on a primer on Christian living, he's encouraging his readers and you and me as readers and hearers to abstain, to live differently, to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. In verse 12, he writes a positive injunction. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Again, I find great encouragement the Bible doesn't simply say stop sinning or don't do that or do this, but rather it redirects us. It gives us energy, a motivation, a desire to go in the right direction. So we turn from the spiritual battle of lust and behave in an excellent manner, at a high level that is good, that is useful. In and among the ethnos, rendered Gentiles here. Keep your behavior excellent among the ethnos, among the Gentiles, the place where you live. This goes beyond our personal behavior. It reflects on him, on his church, the body of Christ which is, of course, a common theme in the New Testament. This is why sometimes we wince when Christian leaders or Christian celebrities fall morally. It's not simply gossip. It breaks the heart of the church. It brings disrepute on the name of Christ, on his followers. We find ourselves on our heels. The idea of prayer shaming, of course, being a current illustration of this. When Christians do things that seem a little odd or out of character, or if they're caught in transgression, it affects the way we live among the Gentiles. Excellent behavior and character stand out to a lost culture. Excellent behavior and character stand out to a lost culture. Well, the church lives in hostile territory, and Christians are going to be slandered. We saw in Acts chapter 17, for example, whether from Jewish political figures or other ethnos, as in 1 Corinthians 6, these challenge early believers. If we fast forward history's lens, we can see how this fueled Nero's animosity toward Christians. He slandered them, he burned them, he sets Rome on fire and blames the Christian. You see, the best way to refute slander is by excellent behavior. Recorded in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Christ said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our excellent behavior matters more than we may appreciate or understand. Now, Peter expands this into three other areas that can sum up as government, home, and marriage. As we continue this idea of a primer on Christian behavior and attitude, secondly then, excellent behavior when it comes to governing authorities, verses 13 to 17. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and in praise of those who do right. Verse 15, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free men, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the King. First Peter chapter two thirteen. Submit yourself. Submission is a word that has been vilified and all but eliminated from our cultural vocabulary. Think of the last time you went to a wedding where the pastor, the minister, the officiant used the word submission. We arch our back toward the idea of submission at every level. Now, in Scripture and extra-biblical use of the term submission is beyond convincing. The idea of submission is subordination to authority. The easiest way for us to understand is to compare it to military language. It always refers to a person who has a superior rank and you submit to him or her. Christ could not be any more clear. In Matthew 22:21, rendered to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. Even the way it's written here by Peter, submit yourselves. There's no therefore there, no transition. It's clear, it's concise, it's direct. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Kenyon writes, Submission has always portrayed the spirit of Christ in his people. Rebellion, has never produced any response from God other than judgment. That's a sermon in and of itself. Submission has always portrayed the spirit of Christ in his people. Rebellion has never produced any response from God other than judgment. When you and I arch our back against authority, when we refuse to submit to God and his word, it's rebellion, plain and simple. Please don't miss Peter's continuing thought, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Even in a fallen world, you and I honor the Lord by our humility to those in authority over us. And here he's speaking of governing authorities. God has ordained authority in our lives. Now this does not address the when, the why, the if of civil disobedience. But I would simply argue here, if a believer ever chooses a path of civil disobedience, he or she must be willing to suffer the consequences as well. Civil disobedience is a massive subject, but my two cents and short explanation is, if you choose that path, it's not bearing arms against the government, but there's a submission to the government, as difficult as that may seem, to suffer the consequences as well. Well, please note in verse 15... Peter continues, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, our theme, excellent behavior and character, matter more than we may understand or appreciate. Now, this whole idea seems to cycle in and out like gifts of prophecy, uh, the discussion of end times. What's the will of God? Um, I remember In my college years, that was a huge topic, even during my graduate school years, books written on discerning the will of God. Not a huge topic today, seems to be more our passion, our vision, what we want to do, it's an I, me, my Christianity, what I call a horizontal Christianity. But a great study, and it really doesn't take that long, is to search God's will in the New Testament. You'll only find a few passages and some incidental references on God's will for your life. Here, it's very clear. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. The idea of silencing here is to muzzle or to tie shut the mouth of foolish men. The word ignorance here is agnosia, agnosia we bring into English, agnostic ignorant, a person that doesn't have the knowledge. It really implies a failure to know something. I wonder if all of us on social media would behave in such an excellent fashion, according to the will of God, that we did right to silence the foolish of ignorant men. It's interesting how knee-jerk we all become. Social media has opened a very quick execution of an opinion without much thought or deliberation. I'm appalled at some of the stuff I have posted, (laughs) and I'm appalled at much of what I read, when people are so quick to jump on with difficult, acerbic, uh, rude, uh, even foul language, without a thought of it. Why? Because everybody else does it. We are not submitting to the will of God by doing what is right, And we certainly don't silence the ignorance of foolish men. Sometimes people post things on my social media that is foolish, that is idiotic, that is unthought. And you can make your own decision, but I choose either not to respond at all, or to respond with something that is as neutral as possible, not to flame the fire. Verse 16, act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Verse 16, like verses 13 and 17, have no connecting particle or a finite verb. Some of our versions say live or act are not present. In other words, it starts abruptly in our English ear. Literally, it's as free men, not act as free men or live, but just as free men, it's also, only one word in the Greek, and that's a bit foreign for us. Free men is our spiritual status. It is the freedom that Christ offers you and me. In John eight thirty six, so if the Son of Man makes you free, then you will be free indeed. In Galatians 5, 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Now, please note, this freedom is not a liberty or a license to sin. Look again at what Peter wrote in verse 16. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. And again, all too often, believers justify our sinful choices under the moniker of freedom and liberty, that we have the liberty to do this as Christians. This freedom is used not for evil, it's a volitional, willing slavery. As free men do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves. So you're freely taking your hands and placing them in shackle form to be a bond slave of God. To me this is a great picture. You put your hands in front of you about six inches apart and extend them out and let the handcuffs be placed on you. You are free to do that. That's your prerogative. It was for this kind of freedom. As free men, do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but as bond slaves of God. When we understand the depth of our salvation, when we grow in Christ, when we learn this life is less and less about me, and more and more about how I serve Christ, we willingly submit to being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Is it any surprise the apostles so frequently called themselves bondservants of Jesus Christ? Well, four imperatives sum up this section. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor, love, fear, honor. Briefly, honor all people. Every person, no matter his Uh, education level, no matter his nationality, no matter uh, his job, no matter his income level, no matter if he's a nice person from your perspective or mine, all people are made in the image of God. He does not differentiate color, language, party. You see, all people, all men and women need the Savior. And the way we honor them is an expression of, uh, I don't Hate this person, I may hate what they stand for. I don't despise that person. I may despise his or her politics. I may despise their vitriolic attitude toward Christians. But if I'm going to win these arguments, so to speak, if I'm going to have this type of attitude to silence the ignorance of foolish men, one way that begins is to honor people who are made in the image of God and need to know Christ. Secondly, love the brotherhood, the second imperative of love, showing deference to believers. Now, the term brotherhood, believe it or not, is only in First Peter, here, and in chapter 5, verse 9. For some of us, this is easy, and for others, it can be harder than the above expression, honoring all people. Nevertheless, it's a command. Now, I don't know about you, but I chalk it up to God's sense of humor. There are certain people he puts in our lives that are just hard to love. But does it seem to you, like it does to me, that loving the brotherhood is harder than loving people that don't know Christ? I mean, I hate to say that, but just being candid with you, I mean, some Christians, I see them coming and I go, Dear Jesus, give me a love for the brotherhood right now. Because I don't know that I have it inside me. Striking its command. If we're going to follow the will of God doing what is right, we're going to silence the ignorance of foolish men, we're going to willingly make ourselves bond of God, we're honoring all people and loving the brotherhood. Thirdly, we fear God. I've suggested the idea before, and we'll talk about it again in the book of First Peter. Having a holy, H-O-L-Y, fear of God needs to be reclaimed. Not being frightened of him, not being terrorized, not not approaching, you know, the man behind the curtain at the Wizard of Oz, but that there is a reverential fear toward the God of the universe, a holy fear, a cautious fear, not not doubt or uh, not cowering, but just a a dose of sobriety, that He is the Creator and sustainer of the universe, He's the God who loved you first called you to himself, calls you his own. And when you approach him, you come through the blood of Jesus Christ, the work of the Savior, having nothing to bring to him apart from what Christ has done for you and me. It would do us well to metaphorically take off our shoes and bow our heads and having a fear of God. And fourth, honor the king. Interesting framework of the paragraph, honor all people, and then honor the king. We begin with submitting yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether king or as one in authority. The Apostle Paul writes the same admonition in First Timothy chapter 2. Another very timely application of this passage is how do believers, how do you and I respond to the man or perhaps in the future the woman who occupies the White House? having been in this church business and Christian world for close to 40 years now, for over 40 years now, I'm struck by whether it's Bush, Clinton, Obama, Trump, going back to Reagan and George H. Bush, H.W. Bush. Uh, I'm just struck by the consternation and debate and vitriolic language used uh, between Christians. Again, whether you voted for the man or that future woman who might sit in the White House one day, do you honor the king? Do you see, in this case, him as a man made in the image of God, as people around him, some of who know Christ, and they have the ear of the king, so to speak? Do you and I honor these men and women? Well, Thirdly, then, our excellent behavior, and here Peter's illustration is between servants and masters. First Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows, when suffering unjustly for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience but when you do what is right and suffer you patiently endure it this finds favor with God the theme of submission continues from verse 13 in this section of first Peter scripture does not dodge difficult issues this section, of course, opens an enormous can of worms when it comes to the discussion of slavery and whether or not these passages were used properly certainly is a, a long and extensive subject. Wayne Grudem gives a f- very good summary, and let me read from his commentary. The horrible degradation of slaves in the 19th century gives the word slave a far worse connotation than accurate for most of the society to which Peter was writing. Although mistreatment of slaves could occur, it must be remembered. First century slaves were generally well treated and were not only unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of the various professions, including doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and skilled artisans. There was extensive Roman legislation regulating the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. If we were to go back to the Old Testament viewpoint of Israel and slavery, there was a segment of the enslaved population that was self-indentured. There were people that had lost everything and they would indenture themselves to a landowner, to a farmer, to a person that had flocks and herds, and work off their indebtedness. Of course, the year of Jubilee was taught in the Old Testament as the opportunity and time for freedom, for debts being paid and resolved. And this uh, this slave and his family could then go about their own way. I like to think of the old Uh, Black and white westerns, I love the westerns, and the metaphor I think is apt when you had uh, hands, ranch hands, farm hands, uh, cattle herders, uh, people that were uh, subscripting themselves, you know, the the bonanza, if you ever watched that as a kid, you lived in the labor house and you worked for the land for the man who owned the property, herding his animals, and over time you saved and you got at stake, well, that's not uh, too far of a good illustration. A Peter's term or use of the word slave or servant occurs in the New Testament only three times. The term could denote those who were part of a household, including both women and children. It was generally a synonym of the more common word doulos, which is the more frequent word slave. It certainly has the latter connotation here. The term does not bring out the emphasis of a servile relationship as dulos does. It points to slaves working in the household and standing in close relationship to the family, a household servant or a domestic, writes Richard Trench. Well, submission here finds favor with God. Our behavior is the theme. Our submission, from verse 13, to those who have authority over us as believers, our behavior is critical. Our excellent behavior matters more than we may appreciate. Note that Peter makes a distinction here between masters who are good and gentle as well as unreasonable. The word unreasonable is from the word scolios, where we bring in scoliosis, crooked. Verse 19 is striking and applicable. Likely we're all going to suffer unjustly. A couple of thoughts here in concluding lessons. Uh, Number one, suffering is inevitable. Misery is optional. I've heard the phrase from a number of different people, don't know who it is originally attributed to, but it's a great phrase nonetheless. Suffering is inevitable. Misery is optional. Um, These believers who are living in a land that's not their home, who are dispersed, who are suffering unjustly, Even as uncomfortable as the discussion may be, for that time, those slaves who were more than likely indentured servants in a household probably were not treated the way we tend to emotionally think of a slave being mistreated. Uh, They were to be in submission. We are to be in submission to those who are in authority over us. That's the big lesson of the passage. It doesn't mean that abuse or any type of personal harm is to be submitted to blindly. But there are difficult, suffering, unjust circumstances that happen to us that there may be a time as Christians that we have to say, I'm going to submit to God as my higher authority under this government situation, under this boss that I have, under this person under whose authority I am. When we were teaching our teenagers to drive, we would often Explain to them when you're pulled over, not if, but when you're pulled over, you are, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, no, sir. You speak to that police officer as the nicest person ever with the greatest respect. And you be sure you have your driver's license, the registration, the information for the insurance and the glove box of the car that we provide for you. You be certain when you're pulled over that you speak kindly and respectfully. And not only will it likely help you, uh, if you're a smart aleck and you're rude and you're disrespectful, more than likely things are not going to go well for you. Maybe you weren't doing anything wrong, which of course most teenage drivers are never doing anything wrong. But isn't that as a parent reasonable to teach your child? Listen, suffering is inevitable. Misery is optional. If you're driving uh, without your seatbelt on, using your phone, weaving around, if you're speeding, if you don't have your license, well... You suffered for choices you made. In the margin of my Bible, on this section of First Peter, I've written, M.J.E., if you must suffer, don't suffer for self-inflicted stupidity. When I worked as a mechanic many years ago in Nacogdoches, Texas, um, I had a friend who was working in the shop, and one day he showed up with a leather holster, a gun holster, and between jobs at his uh, mechanics bench, he was oiling that leather holster much like you would oil a baseball glove. And we were chatting and I asked him about, you know, what, this, what was this about? And he said, well, you got to break a holster in and so forth and so on. And so uh, Tony was working on his holster. Well, fast forward uh, a few days or maybe a couple of weeks later, uh, Tony didn't show up to work one day. And uh, the second day came and went, and I went up to our shop foreman and said, Hey, what's up with Tony? And said, Well, he's called in sick. I said, What's the matter? And go, Well, he's in the hospital. I went, What? Now, I'm a college kid, and I was a, a young, growing Christian, and I thought, Well, goodness, I'll go see him in the hospital. There's only one hospital in the small town where we live, so I went to the hospital, and sure enough, there was Tony, found him without any trouble, and his leg was in a full cast from his ankle up to the middle of his thigh and it was elevated on one of those uh, metal racks with a chain and a lanyard of sorts. And I went in there and started talking. to Tony, what in the world happened? And he talked for just a few seconds and he said, I shot myself. And, of course, trying to restrain the laughter because he was obviously hurt. And I said, what happened? And he explained to me that he was out with his gun And he was, uh, you know, practicing drawing from the holster. And he shot himself through the leg, went in the side of his thigh and came out his calf. And in God's great kindness, it only went through soft tissue, didn't hit the bone. Uh, He was going to be fine. But he came to work and he hobbled on that cast with crutches for many weeks. And, of course, the mechanics were brutal to Tony. And he earned the nickname Quick Draw. And so when anyone would tease him and call him, hey, quick draw, he would turn with this feigned scowl on his face and he would say, you better be careful. I've shot people for less than that. If you're going to suffer, don't suffer for self-inflicted stupidity. And truth be told, don't we more times than not suffer for our own foolish decisions, our own sin, our own negligence than because of some greater injustice? Yes, we can have an unfair boss. Yes, we can have a, a horrible uh, coworker who knifes us in the back or takes advantage of us or, or maybe even misrepresents us in our absence or slanders us or gossips about us. That's the course of life. But isn't it better that you and I suffer for those kinds of things than self-inflicted stupidity? So at the end of the day, this chapter again your behavior my behavior matters more than we understand so if suffering is inevitable misery is optional we can make it worse than it is or for the times we do suffer we can have an attitude of humility an attitude of submitting to god not being disabused not being physically or emotionally abused in any way shape or form but in our context as believers a very unlikely thing we're going to hear or hear talked about in our politically correct world. Um, There's times that good and unreasonable things will happen to us that we don't deserve, but it may be a point to be quiet and to uh, be one without a word, so to speak. If you suffer, don't suffer for self-inflicted stupidity. And then again, the major theme of the chapter is your excellent behavior and mine matter more than we may understand. The way we treat one another, the way we speak about people, the way we withhold information. I don't know your context. If you work around a group of people, the coffee pot and the coffee machine used to be sort of the the central gossip networks of many offices. A lot of things can be said in those situations. You know, you may not want to be the, the warrior that always stands for the truth and corrects people and Um, once in a while you need to do that. Once in a while you need to say, hey guys, let's change the subject. But more times than not, one thing you can always do is keep your mouth shut and quietly excuse yourself from the conversation. There may be that time where you have to say, guys, we shouldn't be talking like this. That might ostracize you some, depending on how you handle it, depending on how people feel exposed or defensive. Uh, But as a believer in Jesus Christ, your behavior and mine As Peter wrote to this group, among the Gentiles, let it be outstanding. Again, you can't simply uh, self-will this up. You can't by discipline get yourself here. But I think it's a great prayer that you and I ask God, help us to evaluate my behavior, that it's squeaky clean, that I'm exceptional among those who don't know Christ, I live in such a way to honor the king, to honor the boss, to honor the manager, honor the supervisor, honor my marriage. Even though I'm in it, I may not always agree, I want to be that man or woman who is kind, who is careful, who speaks well of others, remembering they're all made in the image of God. And help me to be excellent in my behavior among all the people where I live and work and have my being. In Christ's name, amen. Mm-hmm.
0: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.